Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone, it's Tim here again. We received a lot of feedback about the series and I have loved reading all your messages, even the ones who were furious at Carlo and me. A lot of people wanted to hear more from our final guest, Abby Howells, so I've decided to add our chat with her pretty much unedited in all its glory. Enjoy! And if you're in Auckland, see you at the live show on November 18th. It is now my great pleasure and honour to welcome to this final episode of the first season, probably the only season, of Did Titanic Sink, Dr. Abby Howells, PhD. I must hasten to add it's not in a related field to this particular topic, but she's done the work, so I think she deserves to be credited. Thank hi, you so much. Hi, Dr. Abby. Oh, hi. That's actually the first time I've ever been introduced with my title. Really? Yeah. It you, is pretty fresh, right? It's pretty fresh, yeah. But you know what? It makes the four years of agony worth it. <laughs> <laughs> we probably should state what your PhD was in. It's in theatre studies. And specifically... Women in prison, the way they were presented in film and television and theatre. So, the perfect person to come on a podcast about the Titanic. I'm an expert. <laughs> so, Carlo. Tim, Dr. House. I gave you a little bit of a heads up um, about Abby because I was very excited to get her on this, uh, this episode. I have to admit, when Tim first introduced me to the idea of getting on the podcast, he started off by saying... I know a comic who has their PhD in the Titanic. And then very quickly he's like, oh, no, she's got a PhD on steamships. And then it was like, no, I think she just likes the Titanic <laughs> and has a PhD. So, you know, I, I was I was really set up. Yeah. But as I understand, Abby, you're just like me. You're like an amateur historian who's obsessed about the Titanic, right? Yes, absolutely. My qualifications are I'm on the autism spectrum and the Titanic is one of my special interests. <laughs> so you could say in some ways a PhD only lasts four years, but a special interest lasts a lifetime. But, <laughs> That's very um, true. I definitely, yeah, I feel like me and Tim definitely had a conversation and you walked away and I thought... Oh, no, he thinks I have a PhD in the Titanic. I grabbed the bits that I wanted. I went, she's got a PhD. Yeah. She's hyper-educated on the Titanic, and yeah. I mushed them together in my head. But you, but it feels like you have the depth of knowledge equivalent to someone who studied it to a doctoral level um, from, from my amateur estimation anyway. So, Abby, can you first just give us a, a little bit of broad background about um, your prior knowledge about Titanic coming into listening to this podcast? Okay, well, I first began became obsessed with the Titanic when I was about 10 and I can trace it back to an event which is me and my dad and my sister were really into boogie boarding we went out one day onto Katatane Beach and we got caught in a rip we almost drowned 
And I almost drowned to the extent that, like, I was under the water so long that I started to go towards the light. Like, I had this really clear memory of, like, floating upwards toward this light before my dad grabbed the back of my wetsuit and threw me forward. Um, And we all survived, and it was fine. But since then, I don't go in the sea, and I get scared going in swimming pools as well. But I became obsessed with the sea and sort of, like, maritime disasters because you know she's such a cruel mistress she almost claimed me yes. i wanted to know everything about her um so it became obsessed like i love pirate stuff um kraken stuff whale stuff and of ghost ships like the mary celeste but of course the mother of all nautical disasters is the titanic so that was the one that took a lot of my focus and i became obsessed with the titanic uh learned everything about it but my particular interest was the passengers and kind of uh, where they were at each uh, in the crew and where they were at what points in the night uh, and kind of what they did in those moments. And I think because I was analyzing myself earlier and I was like, maybe I'm obsessed with, um, you know, when confronted with death, what did they do? Because I just seemed to succumb to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was just like, so lovely. I'm 10 years old. <laughs> I've had great innings. So you already yeah. knew about the legendary Archibald, but... Yeah, I already knew about a, no- hero. a noble, heroic death. And then, you know, you have the people like the um, J. Bruce Ismays, who, well, it's sort of villainized to an extent for taking a place on the life raft. And um, you have the people like the Strausses, who um, Ida and Isidore Strauss, who she refused to get into a life raft without him so oh. she stayed on the boat and they uh, and she went down with him on the ship see this is, there's so many stories there's so many heartbreaking yeah. and interesting tales associated with this one event yeah someone released all the dogs <laughs> what do you mean when, how many dogs were on board there was quite a few dogs they eh, color there was like 16 dogs yeah they were yeah I yeah. think only one survived is that right yeah a Pomeranian that was on the lap of a first class passenger but someone in their final moments chose to release the dogs. So when you think of the Titanic, there are dogs running along oh the my deck. God. Oh, actually, and one survivor um, was found. Um, she was bobbing in the water holding on to a dog. Oh, I know. Heartbreaking scenes. Yeah. yeah. But that, that's what someone did. Someone was like, I got to get these do- I got to give these dogs a chance. So with all of this passion and prior knowledge and reading and uh, voracious absorption of any morsel of information yes. associated with this event w- w- and and you can you can tell us straight mm. what did you think of the series oh carlo you had me completely convinced Nah, psych. <laughs> I got some questions. <laughs> okay, well, let's flip the tables. Normally, we ask our guests some questions, but if you've got anything that you want to throw at Carlo, yeah. ask Carlo, go go right ahead. All right, Carlo. The jewel in the crown for a lot of people that really believe in the that it was the Olympic that uh, was sunk instead of the Titanic is the portholes, which I'm not sure I've heard you mention. What's your opinion on the portholes and the difference between the Titanic and the Olympic? One of the two of you have to explain what this is because I have no idea. Just to rehash, Abby, uh, Dr. Howes. You can call me Abby. <laughs> yeah, I quite like calling you Dr. Howes because it feels like we're getting to the bottom of a mystery, you know, in Victorian England. <laughs> well, don't call me Dr. Howes away. <laughs> so, Dr. Howes, this is about the fact that the Titanic should have had one more porthole than the Olympic. Is that right? Have I gotten this this fact? Yes, yeah, so the Olympic, I believe, had 14 irregular holes and um, Titanic had 16 regular holes. And a lot of... Um, 16, yes. Uh, yeah, a, a, 
Olympic believers seem to really hang their hat on these portholes. And apparently there's like images and stuff of the Titanic pulling away, but it only had 14 portholes. Um, but I wanted to know your opinion on that particular factoroony. This smells like a fucking setup to me. <laughs> One of the reasons I didn't want to talk about it, that of all of the other evidence to me feels very much about like the quality of evidence that we have. And a lot of it is like, oh, this photo shows that there's 14 portholes. But the arguments against it is normally, well, it's very hard to tell in this angle of photograph or the quality of the photograph isn't enough to actually show us. So while I agree that it could definitely be possible that, and it should in fact be possible that there's 14 portholes on it because it's the Olympic, I am just not convinced by the quality of evidence being brought up in favour of that. Because it's always just like, check out this photo that was taken on the docks of Belfast down this incredibly steep angle where you can't really even make out all the portals. Like, and there should be light here, you know. So it just didn't. It didn't feel like it was as strong as as strong as evidence as, for example, the photo from March 1912, which shows them side by side, and the Titanic hasn't had its deck completed at that time. That is more compelling to me because it gives us a, a better time frame, whereas this. I'm not wholly, wholly a fan of the evidence. It feels too easily refuted just by that fact. Pun intended. Because <laughs> the portholes, nice. Carlo. Very nice. <laughs> oh, you know. Hey, you know, we love the Titanic, but we're comedians as well. <laughs> it's important to remember because some people have forgotten that through the series. Yeah, yeah, it's a maritime disaster, but it's fun to goof around. Yeah, yeah, many perished, but we have a laugh as well. Um, <laughs> many lives were lost and laughs were had. I will, I'll respect that answer um, as well because I feel like the most compelling evidence is I've got to agree with Courtney and Angela that it's incredibly easy to believe that a corporate fat cat would waste human life in favour of uh, gaining more money. That's the most believable part of this whole thing. Absolutely, that happens every day. That's what hooked me in as well, yeah, to be honest. Course. I was like, that, I believe. That's, I don't know about yeah. all this other stuff. Especially because in, in the, like, very much in the zeitgeist when the Titanic disaster happened, only, a, I think it's a year before, maybe two years before, the Republic sank, which was a ship that had a huge number of passengers. I think it may have even had more passengers than the Titanic. And everybody got off safe because it just sank so slowly. And so... The conventional thinking with modern steamships was, you know, even in the worst case scenario, almost everybody should get off. And I think that if you're a if you're a fabulously wealthy multi-millionaire, multi-billionaire in our times, and you're just looking at this like, well, I'll sink this ship, I'll make the money back, no one will get hurt, it'll be fine. Because there's already a blueprint for how it would unfold if the... Republic had like it had happened. What did you say a year prior? I think it's a year prior. It was an observable method of watching this thing play out in real time. You're like, oh, okay, we could do this. People survive, just waste the ship, get the insurance. Yeah, and in fact, when the Republic sank, that was one of the big arguments for why these massive ships didn't need more lifeboats because they were thinking that of them as more like a taxiing craft that could take them from one stricken vessel to a safety vessel and if those other ships also have lifeboats then that's going to supplement the number of lifeboats that you have so yeah i i I can definitely see it being something that where a person would go look look no one's going to get hurt i'm going to make millions of dollars maybe a couple of people will perish and that'd be just like ants to you you know do you want to hear my reasons that i think that it's untrue that i'm unconvinced would love to please okay so my main um, thinking is that the Olympic 
It was not a new vessel. It had been in commission for a year. It had undertaken four trips back and forth from uh, the UK to America. And um, my feeling is that there's going to be so much wear and tear, it would be impossible to pass it off as an entirely new vessel. I think, um, you know, Titanic was known as this incredible luxury. It was brand new. That was a thing about it. A huge amount of money would have had to have been invested into it to um, make it look that way. And I think, because you talked about the changes and like these non-structural changes they did to the Titanic, but they added like a lot of like changes they didn't need to. Like they made the Titanic more luxury. Like they added in this weird little cafe that was supposed to look like a cafe in Paris. And they just added that. Disneyland. Yeah, the Cafe Parisian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they added that into the Titanic. Um, And it had its own unique China. And like they didn't have to do that. Why would they do that if they were just going to sink it? Well, not ever. But this is the thing about conspiracy theories as well, or things that happen in history sometimes that are very suspicious. Not everything is related to the conspiracy theory part of what happened, right? Sometimes it occurred to someone that they wanted to change the China for some other totally different unrelated reason. True, but there's so much money and they commissioned like unique portraits to be hung in the first class smoking lounges and that kind of thing. They sunk a lot of money into the Titanic. I don't know why they would add these like details that... um, it's cost really costly, and they're not even going to recoup the full amount. Like it took five, was it seven point five million to build, but the insurance was only for five million. So why would they sink in all this cash on commissioning artists to create stuff, creating little Paris cafes, switching the location of the Turkish baths if they were just going to sink the thing, Carlo? It's a good question, and interestingly, all of those big works, like the the paintings, the crockery, all of that is additionally insured. So they they will make their money back on all of those items because all of them are listed as individual things. I think even Allianz Insurance, that's still still around, there were a huge number of different insurance brokers that covered various elements of the Titanic, and they covered a lot of these additional elements. So. It, the the factor there of like the the cost in those things can be recouped admittedly the other thing is i don't think this was an intended plan years in the making i feel like it was sort of months in the making you know which is the olympic throws this propeller blade and they're in a huge millions and millions of dollars of debt at this point already and it's a very quick thing that can be done like the photograph from march shows them being almost still identical um, so other than one being unfinished, as it were. So that's the time frame we're thinking, like in a few months. All these things like the crockery, the paintings, they've been commissioned, you know, years, sometimes many years in advance, particularly some of those fine furnishings. Um, you know, th- those things have been in the works far longer than the conspiracy. So it would almost be too obvious to stop those processes, Um because there's a huge industry. I mean, it's I, I don't know the exact percentage, but a huge amount of Belfast at this time is involved in the outfitting of ships, like the making of beds and rope, and it's a huge part of their industry. So if you're like, oh, actually, we're not going to do all this luxury on the Titanic, I think that's going to ring more alarm bells than just insuring it and, uh, you know, and recouping that cost. Because I definitely understand what your point is, like, they're going to make less money than it costs them to build it. But when you're cash poor, 
and you have a backlog of ships being made, like the Britannic is going to come out in a year, which is also identical to these two ships. And after that, they've got plans for the future of bigger ships and better ships. So it's not like they have a shortage of ships that can generate them an income. What they do have at this precise time is like a massive, massive deficit of cash. And this is a very relatively quick way to to get an influx of of liquid money. Satisfied? No, that's not right. On that, on that specific on point. On that specific point, that's you know, that's a very reasonable argument. I feel like I feel like at the moment, Carlo, we're like stripped to the waist, both with knives like circling each other. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, like, it's like a jewel. <laughs> I didn't know if it, if it was sort of my role in the universe to bring the two of you together or to make sure that you never interacted. <laughs> This this opens up a whole new timeline. <laughs> um, well, my final point that I was thinking of was like, in your mind, had they done any restoration on the Olympic before sending it out as the Titanic? Like, are they sending out a damaged vessel? Yes. Um, the short answer is yes. I would think, as part of this conspiracy, yes. The idea is that all of those like quite significant damages to the Olympic, like the damaged propeller shaft, and there's an argument that we didn't talk about in the podcast, but there's this theory that the Olympic apparently had a slight list of port and people reported the Titanic having a slight list of port, um, like it's leaning over to the left. Again, I think it's too circumstantial, that evidence, to have brought up. But... The the main line that I'm saying is the structural impact of that collision with the Hawk had been repaired already, but to an extent that it wasn't a fully fixed ship. What I'm my theory is that they then re-outfitted that ship, so it was completely redone. So that question of it wouldn't have looked like a new ship. I think that it, it very much would have because they're doing all of this additional carpentry. They're changing A and B decks around, they're moving the Turkish baths, they're creating the Café Parisian. These things would have required like quite a significant amount of work in the ship itself and repainting, polishing decks. It's being completely reupholstered. So I think it's it's been completely re-outfitted. It hasn't been wholly repaired. Like the damage to the Olympic would still be very much present in the so-called Titanic. It also explains to me why the Olympic, which went in for that that propeller repair um, in March, doesn't come back out to sea until the day that Titanic is uh, leaving on its maiden voyage from Southampton. Like, it's an extraordinary amount of time, and it just sort of silently leaves dock on, in Belfast on the same day that Titanic's sailing out into the Atlantic. It, it, um, yeah, it takes a very long time to fix that one thing. Okay. Well, if it's seaworthy enough to be sent out with passengers on it, surely it would be easier to just recoup the cost via sending it out and getting passengers to pay for tickets. Because, you know, the top first class ticket, they would, it roughly translates to about $100,000 per cabin, right? In, in today's money. Totally. Yes. Yes. Wouldn't it be easier to just send out the vessel and recoup the costs? Because if it's seaworthy enough to go out there... Look, why didn't they just do that? I contend it's a very good point. I, I think it goes down to the time it will take to recoup this. Like the that seven point five million that it's taken to build the so-called Titanic, that cost is. We did the maths on it. It's some. I think it's two hundred and fifty-six 
million dollars. So even with those like massive first class tickets, there's only so many crossings they can do in a year and only so many crossings they can do in a decade. Like to actually start to get close to making that money back is going to take an extraordinary long time. And there's no guarantee that it will. Obviously, they're hugely optimistic in the shipping industry at this time. They're like, this is going to be a golden ticket forever. And then two years later, World War One will happen and, you know, scupper so many uh, passenger liners. But at this time, like, the seas are calm as far as they can see, but it's still going to take them, you know, decades to recoup that money just on ticket sales. Whereas this is a really quick way that they can make that money back. Because, as I said, they've the Olympic, which was the Titanic, now disguised as the Olympic, it can get back into, into work. A year later, the Britannic can get back into work. Suddenly, we've got these two ships making that income, and we've just got back nearly all of the cost of building one of them, um, which remedies some of these huge legal costs that we have, some of these huge repair costs, and some of the huge lost income, which is, I think, in itself more significant than any of the other costs, purely because... The IMMC has borrowed so much against these ships. You know, like they are, they're up for much more by the consequence of those ships not generating income. Abby, I want to ask you a question. Please. I feel, and first an observation and then a question. Yes. My observation is that it's been quite interesting to watch Carlo, who went from moments ago admitting that he only really believes this has got a 5% chance of being the reality of what happened in history uh, to when backed against a corner with you know questions and evidence to the contrary and doubt about the theory, he will go right back to his steadfast position of being able to prove very willingly and very like forcefully that no, this is what happened and this is why. The question is, how did you feel as a listener who has joined me on the journey in a different way, because obviously you were so knowledgeable to begin with, of, of Carlo weaving this tale and putting the pieces of evidence together to create this compelling case and then throw it all away at the end to reveal that he doesn't even fully believe it? My goodness. Uh, I, I must say, I have loved the podcast so much. Uh, may I tell you about my listening experience? I would love to hear it. <laughs> okay, the first, I listened to episode one, and I was on a train from Edinburgh to London, and I booked a first-class ticket because I'm classy, <laughs> and I had, um, and the, in first class, they give you food for free. So, uh, well, it's not for free. I would have paid, paid for it. You don't pay more. Uh, yeah, I don't pay more for it. So, I had a little egg sandwich. I had a cup of and I had some crisps as well and I was going through the English countryside and I was listening to the Titanic podcast and I honestly had the thought life could not be better <laughs> that is so sweet <laughs> I have saving I was like I'm heading to London I get to go to the Victorian Albert when I get there honestly life could not be better than this this is I said to myself now this is living <laughs> So and then I, someone looked over at you and said, I'll have what she's having. And that was five episodes of a conspiratorial podcast. No, I loved it. It's wonderful. It's like I, I, I couldn't love a podcast more, to be honest with you. Uh, it felt like listening to two friends, but one of them knew heaps about the Titanic. And you don't often meet people that know heaps about the Titanic. Um, so I loved listening to it. There was stuff that I didn't know that you brought up. So it was a learning experience for me. What was new, just out of interest? Um, uh, so my knowledge, is, you have a huge practical knowledge of the boat, which I don't have, um, you know, in terms of like... Um, 
Oh, you know, I I knew about the the ice tray at the bottom and all this, you know. The watertight bulkheads. The watertight bulkheads, you know, and, you know, every basic business. Sorry, I Tim. did not. Tim did not. I did not. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't know um, as much about the boat. I didn't know as huge amount about the court case and the sort of testimony as well as um, I didn't know the hugest amount about the correspondence that happened Um in the two-hour radio play, if, if if you know, release the two-hour radio play cut, and I'll listen to it <laughs> carefully. Um, uh, so there's stuff that I didn't know. Yeah, to hear you throw it away, and then I was like, to be honest, a little annoyed because I had prepared all these really good arguments, and I was ready to be like, "Hey, fuck you, Carlo, <laughs> come at me." <laughs> and I was like, I, I sort of, um, to be honest, quite arrogantly considered myself to be the final boss of the podcast that <laughs> um, you had to convince. And to hear you throw it away, I was like, my presence means nothing. So, uh, but that was arrogant on my behalf. <laughs> I couldn't actually remember because I think I asked you when we had a brief conversation about this quite a long time ago when we were, yeah. uh, uh, Carlo and I were first sort of cooking up the idea. Mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't remember your answer to whether or not you believed the conspiracy theory or not because you were mm. aware of it. I was aware of it, but I I didn't believe it. Sure. Yeah. Too smart. Too um, cynical. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, I almost died. I've lived through some things. <laughs> <laughs> you sharpen up your tools when yeah. the sea tries to take you. Exactly. You pay attention. When the cruel mistress of the sea tries to take you down, you become wiser and you become stronger. Because <laughs> you emerge stronger than before. Yeah, even if, you know, at the, in the moment, you kind of just sort of just let her take you, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the transformation. But did you did you feel a little bit betrayed then when Carlo threw it all away? I must say I, I was a little bit betrayed, Carlo, but um you know, at the same time I have an immense respect for you, but um and I guess you, that's why the betrayal hurt. Is it as a fellow intense fanatic of this topic as well though, can you understand the motivation that Carlo had, which was to essentially figure out a way to trap me in a room to tell me about Titanic and to engage me in his Titanic chatter for multiple days. Absolutely, I relate to that because I feel like that's what I do all the time with my comedy shows because um, my other interest is the tutors. And um, I spend a lot of time in my comedy show telling the audience about the tutors. And I often have the thought of like, wow, people have paid to see me do this. (laughs) (laughs) This is the dream. (laughs) And I'm just standing here talking about the tutors. Which is information that nobody would have listened to. Ah, <laughs> oh, I did this show last week. A lady tried to correct me on the tutors. Can you believe that? How did that go? Give us the blow by blow. What did she okay. try to correct you on? She tried to correct me on Mary the First. Something about Mary the First. I can't exactly what she said. Um, but I was like, "Ma'am, you have put a knife to a gunfight here." <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't believe did it. Did you slap her down proper? They happened on stage. I was like. I can't believe you would have the audacity to come in here. Wait, was that a heckler? Yeah, she I thought you mean after the show. No, she heckled me with a fact during the show. Man, was it a fact or was it a fiction? It was an absolute fiction. It was oh. another wife's tale. Dogs. And um, I even said at the beginning of the show, I said, hello, everyone. I know some comedians talk to the audience, but I am on the spectrum, so I don't. Um, because talking to people is not a top strength of mine. She screwed up twice. She screwed up twice. Carlo, I'd like to open up the floor to you if you would like to um, uh, ask Abby, Dr. Howells, any questions or um, make any comment based on what you've heard so far. Yeah, Dr. Howells, I would love, I have two questions for you. My first is who's your favourite passenger or crew member on the Titanic and why? 
I was going to ask you this, Carlo. Can you answer it after me? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, I feel like you've got to respect, uh, I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, I'm sure, but Charles Joggin, who was the chief baker on board the Titanic. Let the record state you've stumped Carlo. People okay. can't hear this, but this is the first time I've experienced a I, I, piece of Titanic information Carlo was not immediately familiar with. I probably incorrectly pronounced his name, but he was the one who, um, he he was supposed to man one of the life rafts, but he saw that there was already a crew member on board and he thought, I don't want to take an extra seat, so someone else can take that and I'll, I'll stay on, on the boat. And he um, loaded up the... Um, the life rafts with bread and then um, he was throwing dick chairs off and then he had a very relatable instinct which was I'm going to get fucked up so he went back into the kitchen Yeah, he went back into the kitchen just knocked back a bunch of alcohol and then um, just was drinking and like you know and throwing dick chairs out and then he's the last person on board the Titanic because he um, managed to climb up to the top and get himself on the opposite side of the rails and then he said he rode it down like an elevator and stepped off the Titanic into the water um, but the alcohol kind of helped him survive <laughs> so like those um, St. <laughs> Bernard's that they send him with whiskey yeah they found him in the water right he was just swimming around and he'd been swimming for 40 minutes or something. Yeah. And, and um, his hair wasn't even wet. And they, he managed to like, cut. there was one uh, life raft that was like kind of capsized and he managed to sort of attach himself to that. Yeah. And then he got pulled into another life raft. But yeah, he was so drunk. He said later, I didn't even know it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like he's kind of the legend of the Titanic in, in many ways. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's pretty cool, I think. And he's really quite cash about the whole thing too. Wow. Oh, yeah. He was involved in a, like a, an event that killed a lot of people to be <laughs> yeah. quite cash about yeah, it. Yeah, he's... Um, in, he's in Titanic, the movie, as well. You can see him uh, when Rose and Jack are holding on. He's also there. Oh, true. Yeah, Great he's like in a baker's uh, outfit. Yeah. On the rails. On the I rails. They, they climb. Okay, yeah, next, yeah uh, he's there. Can't get one past Jim Cameron. Yeah. Carlo, who was, who was your favourite um, character from the event? Normally, I say Thomas Andrews is the most interesting passenger to me, who was... Architect. The, yeah, the architect of the ship who tried to save a bunch of people through a lot of uh, rafts. And I just find his story so interesting and compelling. Also, there's this beautiful detail, which is like such a specific Easter egg for people who have read into the Titanic, which is in the film. You probably know this. Is it the, the little moment he has by himself? Yeah. With the painting? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I think about that all the time. Yeah, so this is like... All right, one of you's got to tell me what's going so, on here. Oh, you go, Carlo. Uh, uh, I'm glad you're on the same page as me, as they say. But, yeah, there's one of these, I think it was a stewardess. There's, like, conflicting reports of where he was last seen. So some people saw him, like, making the deck chair rafts. One stewardess said that they saw him standing at the mantelpiece in the, I think it's the gentleman's smoking room, but where he is in the film, looking at this painting. And that painting was of, I think it's called Belfast Lock, which is the body of water in Belfast, which is, where he grew up and so this last moment is apparently him just staring at this body of water that you'll never see again and then he adjusted the clock to the correct time and I think the correct time in Belfast but I may have just made that up to romanticise it but yeah so this is just this lovely little moment of a guy who 
He knew there was no hope. He didn't try and get off and he just stood there looking back on this painting of, of you know, his home, which I think is quite a touching story. Yeah, it's this incredible little moment, like, amongst the chaos. He just took a little bit of time to himself to just um, just sort of sit and look at the painting for a few moments and then, um, I guess, charged back into the chaos again. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it is this incredible moment that I think about all the time. Um, but, Carla, you said that wasn't even your number one. Yes, who's this your number like one? This was, like, an ancillary oh, character. He's normally my number one, one of, but... Because we talked about him a lot in the, in the podcast, the other person is uh, Masabumi Hosono, who was the only Japanese passenger and he survived the, the disaster. And this kind of speaks more broadly about, like, there were a lot of men who did survive and the film really portrays it as, like, Bruce Ismay being, like, the only non-crew male who survived. But there were a lot that did. And when Hosono got back to Japan, he just became this national figure of disgrace and they just absolutely pilloried him when he got back to Japan and he kind of lived the rest of his life um, just constantly having this event that he survived being thrown back in his face. It was just such a source of national shame. And he was too proud while he was alive to reveal these this correspondence that he'd kept with one of the other survivors. And I think it was his his children or his grandson, whose grandson is also like considered to be one of the most influential Japanese pop musicians. It's all on Spotify. It's amazing. You go check out his stuff. Hitomi Hasono. Um, anyway, one of either his grandson or his uh, children, they revealed all of these letters that had been sent to Hasono from other survivors. And apparently he was like so brave and stoic during this event and he helped so many people get into lifeboats and it was just this moment where the lifeboat was pretty much full and they're like come in you get into this lifeboat and he was actually like a bit of a hero but he was so proud he was like i'll never show these letters to anybody and so they were eventually revealed and his name was cleared in japan but yeah it's it's just a really interesting story to me that's interesting because Bruce Ismay kind of had a similar thing, right, where he was absolutely vilified by the American press. He was he was the highest ranking member of White Star that survived. You know, he's vilified, obviously, in, in Titanic, the movie, and his wife forbade him to talk about it at home. And he never talked about the Titanic to the extent that one of his grandchildren uh, asked him, oh, you, you worked on the sea. Were you ever in any shipwrecks? And then he said, I was in one. And that was about it. But Whoa. he um, poured his heart out to this fellow passenger, Marion Thayer, I believe her name was. But he wrote these letters talking about his shame and how he felt. And he just uh, poured his absolute soul out to this woman. Um, she was kind of like, wow, that's a bit intense. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, after a year, she started writing to his wife. Oh, only. my God. But, oh, she almost did like the equivalent of like a CCing in. <laughs> Oh um, no! His wife just to be like, "Hey, you know, this is not the vibe for me." <laughs> <laughs> you need to talk to your husband, lady. Yeah, he's got some stuff to get <laughs> off his I, chest. I think he tried to kind of like put the vibe out there a little bit because I think he said something like, "Oh, you know, if only you know, when I first met you, I thought maybe 
this could be an interesting relationship. He said something like that. And well, then he she, doesn't sound like it was a totally great dude then. Yeah. He, <laughs> he may have been vilified in the press yeah, for the wrong reasons, but, yeah. you know. No, he sucked. Like, I think that's why oh, really? people didn't like him. Was he quite an easy guy to kind of oh, set up as being the villain of, oh, 100%. of the event? He was super, he was really weird. Like, he was super intense and boring like he's the kind of person that would like corner you in a conversation and tell you all about like things and he also ate exactly the same thing for dinner every single night pretty much for the rest of his life and it was just like cold turkey. What was this after the event? After the event. So even it sounds if, like PTSD yeah, or something. Like even if his wife. It's not being boring, yeah, Abby. No. That is dealing with intense trauma. I know. Badly. Even if his wife had a dinner party and was serving something else, he would say, no, 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 cold turkey for me. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not even hot turkey. It's not yeah. even a hot bird. Yeah. I just find him so fascinating as a, as a person. Slightly sympathetic, but also not. But, sorry, Carl. What were you yeah, what you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say I, I'm after. I, I agree with you, Abby. Like I'm so interested in Bruce's mate, and I after listening to the last episode back, I started wondering if, like, maybe he is the basis for those cinema villains of like the guy with the moustache and the top hat. And I like I haven't looked into it, but it, I am really intrigued by how, you know readily lampooned he he is in that he just has this villainous look but then i started to wonder is is the reason that we associate that kind of long twirled mustache and top hat with villainy because of bruce is mate wow yeah because he his his image presumably would have been splashed across newspapers throughout the u.s and then sort of reflected in, in the media at the time. He was in cartoons. Like, they cartooned him. Like, because famously he, like, when the Titanic was sinking and he was in life raft, he turned away from the boat as it was sinking. And there's this quite famous cartoon of him, like, turning away from the from the boat. So oh, he was... God. I think you could make a very compelling argument for that, Carlo. But, yeah, I find him really interesting. And he um, had a stroke later in life and he had a diabetes and he lost his leg. But he rigged up this kind of invention so no one would have to take him to the toilet. <laughs> he could do it himself. Wow, good on him. I yeah. can understand that. Can yeah. I ask you two a dumb question? Yeah. <clears throat> which we never visited in, in the podcast. And maybe I'll, I'll throw this to you first, Carlo. I kind of forgot to ask you because we got so swept up in the details. But this is something that I heard about Titanic on the internet ages ago. Was Tutankhamun on board? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, definitely no. not. It, Where did that come from? <laughs> it was this. It was a conspiracy that the Titanic sank because of a mummy's curse, and that they had the corpse of a mummy on there. Tutankhamun wasn't discovered until what year is it now? Nineteen twenty-two, because it's a hundred years ago he was discovered. Oh right, on the twenty-fourth of November or twenty-fifth of November, twenty twenty, nineteen twenty-two. So it wasn't Tutankhamun, and it wasn't any other mummy. There's no evidence that there was ever a mummy on the Titanic at all. But it is quite a compelling conspiracy. It's a good story. I'm glad we cleared it up because I assume there's at least a couple of listeners who have been listening through half a dozen episodes waiting for the Tutankhamun <laughs> the curse to, to be addressed. Where's Tutankhamun? <laughs> They're going to mention him soon. Well, Abby, we've asked everyone. I feel like I may know the answer to this question. But in your opinion, did Titanic sink? Yes, I think it did sink. I don't think it was the Olympic. I think it was the Titanic, but do 
you know, like I said, do I believe um, some rich guy had an absolute disregard for human life? Completely. <laughs> Those two things can <laughs> yeah. coexist. Yeah. <laughs> Does a doubt exist that didn't exist before, Abby? Oh, certainly. Like, I definitely hear, heard you out completely. And I'm not completely against conspiracy theory. So I kind of believe in ghosts, too. So it's like, who am I to talk? <laughs> Those are two quite different things. <laughs> it's all coming out. Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and, and for your kind words about the podcast. I was so excited to get you on this at some point. I'm so glad that you and Carlo have had a chance to um, discuss these important matters with each other. And uh, thanks for being a part of this project. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I feel full up with sunshine and I'm on the road to my heart. Were you going to, it looked like you were going to salute me for a second there, Carlo. <laughs> I will salute you, Dr. Howe. I feel like a salute would be appropriate. So I, I will salute you as well. I will salute you as a sort of, even though I don't believe your theory entirely, as a fellow traveller on this path, I respect the heck out of you. Dr. Howes, it's great to meet another ship out here in the middle of the sea. Thanks so much for listening, and stay subscribed to get our live show episode in November. Speaking of which, if you're in Auckland, we'd love to see you at the Did Titanic Sync live show, happening on November 18 at Soap Dance Hall in the CBD. For live show tickets and details, go to didtitanicsync.com. Titanic